Lord, I did not freely choose you till by grace you set me free from my heart would still, though my heart would still refuse you had your love not chosen me. That if I love you, Lord, it is because you have first loved me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> I feel like a good Protestant pastor climbing into the pulpit with my Bible, except as an Episcopalian, it's my hymnal. <laughs> and the Book of Common Prayer. In one of the earlier set of interviews for candidates for the position of dean here, I had the opportunity to speak with one of them by Skype, and he made the comment, he said, I notice that you deal with complex theological ideas in the sermon. <laughs> After a pause, I said, well, perhaps that might tell you something about the congregation at Trinity Cathedral. There is a view, many Episcopalians hold it, the clergy especially, that theological ideas should not be explored in sermons. Three weeks ago, we looked at the relationship that we have from the place of our lives in the present with the great tradition that we are heirs to. It rolls down through the ages, handed on to us. And the tension in this place, in the present, is to relate to that tradition in a way that brings it to new life within our own time and context. As Episcopalians, we are very familiar and easy with that process of relating to tradition because Tradition is something important to us. Last week we explored the opposite side of the tradition of the past that comes to us when we looked at the less comfortable preaching that Jesus gives and which I refer to as the expectations of the kingdom. If the tradition of the past comes to enrich our living in the here and now, the future breaks in through the expectations of the kingdom. Spiritual understanding emerges over time from humanity's long march of relationship with God. Christianity and Islam both inherit from Judaism a very historically rooted understanding of the evolution of God's relationship with humanity. This historical understanding of God can be contrasted with the understanding of the great Eastern religions, if we take Hinduism, for instance, the view of God is timeless and cosmic, unchanging. 
uninvolved with the life of humanity. It is outside historical time and place. In the Judaic historical view of God, God appears to be continually changing, evolving into human consciousness through events in time and place. And the scriptural record is the unfolding account that witnesses to this process of evolution. If we compare the images of God that we heard in Exodus 32 this morning with the images of God that Jesus presents in Luke chapter 15, it's obvious to all of us that God appears to grow and change over time. And the point here is not the complex theological question of whether God changes or is unchanging. It's that God appears to grow within the evolving relationship with humanity, with the evolution of culture, our image of God also evolves. And in Exodus 32, we see God entering into history very clearly through the long 40-day conversation between God and Moses on Mount Sinai. 40 days is a very long time for one conversation. And a clear picture of God emerges. A God possessing strong feelings. The God of the Torah feels and reacts when things don't go according to plan. Exodus 32 reveals a God who, when crossed, can rise to the heights of rage that threaten to obliterate the Israelites. God rages against Israel because God passionately loves Israel. And the passionate God is revealed here to have anger management problems. God appears to have a very poor tolerance for being disappointed and displays an alarming tendency for poor impulse control. You see, the people have become frightened by Moses' long stay on the mountain. They feel lost and bewildered because Moses and the God who accompanies him has deserted them. Lost and afraid, deprived of Moses, they turn to Moses' brother Aaron for comfort and leadership. They ask him to restore their lost sense of God's presence. Now, Aaron is a priest, and priests tend to be more practical than prophets. More down to earth. And so Aaron and the people construct a God who is more immediately available to them. And it's not so much that they confuse the golden calf with the unseen God of Moses. It is that 
through the golden calf, they simply long to experience a God who is accessible and available. In the golden calf, they can see God. They can touch God. In this image, they have a God to whom they can pour out their concerns, to whom they can express their fears, a God before whom they can dance and celebrate with ecstatic joy. Feeling lost and abandoned, through the golden calf, the Israelites have a God that they cannot lose. And Exodus 32 seems to be one of those powerful cathartic moments in the history of the relationship between God and humanity. In the face of God's rage and his threat of poor impulse control, Moses discovers it is possible to stand his ground and to force God to calm down. Moses discovers that God can be reasoned with. And if this was not a first experience for Moses, it wasn't a first experience for God either, because earlier Abraham had done the very same thing when he persuaded God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In both instances, a human being needs to remind God of God's desire to remain faithful to his promises despite the sudden rush of blood to the head. And there is a deep insight here into the psychology of all relationships. No real relationship can exist where either party to the relationship lacks the power to make an impact on the other. And so God also seems to learn something from this encounter. God's mood is changed by being reminded of the bigger picture of the covenant with Abraham now being renewed with Moses. And despite his rage, God also seems to realize that human beings need a level of physical intimacy in the encounter with God's self. It's refreshing often to turn to rabbinical interpretation of these scriptures. And Rabbi Arthur Vaskov, commenting on this aspect of the encounter on Mount Sinai, has this to say. The ancient rabbis thought there was a relationship between the golden mishkin, which is the tent of meeting, and the golden calf. The way they understood the relationship was that from watching how the people dance before the calf, God ruefully accepts that the people need a physical focus for their experience of God. So God gives them the mishkin in place of the calf. In this approach, the story as we have it in the Torah is out of order, chronologically reversed, for it is the experience of the calf that convinces God to design the Mishkin. How wonderfully free the rabbis feel in the interpretation 
of their sacred texts. And Rabbi Vaskov ruefully notes the similarity between the golden calf and the golden altar that is to be placed in the center of the tent of meeting. He says, and the people, dimly from the foot of the mountain, they hear the overtones, a conversational blur. Plenty of gold, uh-huh. And something about horns? Must be a golden bull calf. So they build it for God as well as us. The truth is firm, what you sow, you shall reap. Or to put it another way, certainly earth is spirit and there needs to be a physical context for the spiritual path. The path is very earthy. We, living in the here and now, relate to this tradition because we live in a time when idols abound. Since the Enlightenment, God has been in retreat from the stage of the universe, finally ending up off stage, leaving us to strut with increasing self-importance center stage. Christianity takes a detour into deism where the image of God is that of the prime mover who subsequently leaves the universe to run itself. God absents God's self, leaving us feeling alone because we are like the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, bereft of a lively sense of being in relationship with God and trying to get on with things as best we can. And so finding substitutes to fill the chasm of our loss, we construct and worship our own golden calves. Amidst the many idols of Western society, the idols of science and morality particularly stand out. Like the golden calf, our idols of science and morality comfort us with something more immediate and tangible in the face of the experience of our existential loneliness. I'm not suggesting that scientific progress is not a benefit to society. But as an idol, it comforts us with the illusion that through the increasing control over the material universe, human beings can become the authors of our own salvation. Similarly, civilization needs a moral compass Yet the idol of morality confronts and comforts us in the belief that if we just follow the rules, we will be saved by being good people. And idols function well up to a point because it's lonely center stage with only the faintest intimation of God whispering from the wings. 
and in our loneliness, we question whether we really do have a relationship with God that is accessible to us in the midst of our everyday experience. And in our need to assuage our existential loneliness, the idols of science and morality promise more than they can deliver. And this is so true for those of us living right now in the 21st century. This is a time when the idols of science and morality increasingly are failing to fill the gap created by our loss of a tangible relationship with God. And this causes us to plunge into a deep despair and cynicism. Now, there are some Christians who might accuse me of heresy in suggesting that God is anything but unchangeable. But my point is not because we have a God who is known to us as unchangeable. My point is that God is only known to us through the events of time and place. And as we evolve, our experience of the image of God evolves with us. And in Luke 15, Jesus offers us profound images that reveal the evolution of God over the long march from Exodus to the Incarnation, where the God of Moses is passionate and jealous. The God of Jesus is compassionate and extravagant. The parables of Jesus are not morality stories teaching us how to be good people. They are expectations of the kingdom and exhortations to discipleship. Through juxtaposing of images that are at once familiar and at the same time absurd, Jesus challenges us to move beyond the limits of our own idols. The idols are only that which we can imagine for ourselves. The expectations of the kingdom about which I spoke last week, summed up in the daily prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Break into the safe but lonely experience forcing us to draw uncomfortable comparisons between what we are prepared to settle for and what God earnestly and extravagantly desires for us. The God of Moses demanded obedience. The God of Jesus calls us into a relationship of discipleship in which we find the courage to live and work for more than we imagine being possible. And only discipleship leads us to the discovery that in the midst of feeling alone and lost, we are already found. One of the weekly bloggers on the text for Sunday by Sunday, David Ewart, in his blog, Holy Textures, puts it like this. 
There may indeed be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. But the parables are more about the joy to be had on earth from hearing the good news of the extravagant God who risks all to search for one of us personally and individually. To search for us joyfully. And our God isn't sitting passively off somewhere in heaven, waiting for someone to bring the news that a sinner has repented. Our God is actively searching for us. The only question that remains for us, will we allow ourselves to be found? Amen.